This is Elliot Everett, and you're listening to the RUF Ole Miss podcast for November 7th, 2007. Chapter 20. Let's give our attention tonight to the reading of God's Word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit, and it shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while." Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection." Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea." And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is God's word for us. A friend of mine sat in line this summer awaiting the last of the Harry Potter books series to be unboxed. While he was standing there in line, there was a man some places behind him who began to have a discussion with his neighbor about certain contents of the book. 
Apparently, the man had secured an illegal advance copy of the ending of the book on the internet and was discussing it rather loudly in this line. Uh, My friend described what was almost a mob scene of rebukes uh, as the crowd sort of hushed this poor man's uh, awful indiscretion. Why is it, though, that we are so addicted to knowing the end of the book uh, before we read it? Now look, setting aside the social faux pas of telling someone the ending before they've read the book, have you noticed the fact that knowing the end of the story very dramatically changes how you actually read the story. Look, I'll be honest with you. Had I known, had I known that Frodo was going to make it through the end by the end of Mount Doom. Oops, I just did it. Sorry. Had I known that Frodo and Sam were going to make it through the fires of Mount Doom. If you haven't seen that yet, you're you're totally clueless. Um, I would not have been sitting in my chair one night as my wife found me literally balled up reading as Frodo marched through Shelob's lair. Shelob, of course, was the great, terrible, giant spider that attacked Frodo. Scared me to death, to be quite frank with you. But the truth was, had I known that he made it through, I would have been okay. Because knowing the ending dramatically changes your experience of the story, does it not? Well, look, the same is true for the Christian story as well. Granted, for a make-believe story, it's sort of all the fun not to know what's going to happen at the end. But you know, in real life, knowing the ending in many times can result in a matter of life and death. Look, Christians live in the light of a very certain future. And it's certain because it has been set by God Himself. But that doesn't mean that Christians therefore have always agreed on how God is going to end it all. And I've tried this semester as best as I know how to present to you what I think is the most natural, biblically accurate reading of the book of Revelation, as best as I know how. But for many of you, I'm sure you've been frustrated by the sort of litany of of bizarre images and descriptions. And honestly, it's very easy for the forest to get lost in the trees. For that reason, it is my intention tonight to lay out as plainly as I can what it is that the Reformed tradition says about the book of Revelation's teaching on the end of history, on how it all ends, right? And I also want to contrast this view with the popular view, which is in many ways the default mode for most of Christianity in our culture today. We do this tonight because we come to what is without question the most hotly debated chapter in all the book of Revelation. To be quite honest with you, it's probably the most debated chapter in all of the Bible. Um, And we're going to do it in 25 minutes tonight. So bear with me. In order to understand Revelation chapter uh, 20, I suggest to you, you need four helps. Four interpretive clues that will guide you through this process. And you have those four things listed on your handouts there in front of you tonight. Number one, you need to get understand that it is a snapshot of history. Number two, you need to get a grasp over the thousand years. Number three, you have to understand the bound devil. And number four, you have to see a vision of thrones. Catch that? Snapshot, thousand years, devil, thrones. First of all, a snapshot of history. 
The first interpretive clue, I hope by now, is fairly obvious to you, at least sounds familiar, and that is that the book of Revelation does not come to us in a strict chronological order. It is not a layout in chronological history. Rather, what John does is he takes a basic Christian approach to human history and he tells the story through these cycles of lenses. As a matter of fact, it happens to be seven lenses. And these lenses get cycled through, each of them giving a glimpse of human history from a certain point of view. Now you have those cycles listed for you on your handout. So either look at the one that you have or look on your neighbors and see what I'm talking about. Revelation 4, if you go all the way back to them, begins the first cycle, showing us the picture of the seals. Revelation 8-2 begins the second cycle, talking about the trumpet judgments. Revelation 12-1 gives us a, a third cycle about the great dragon seeking to devour the child, uh, Jesus. And of course, the mother, who is the church, is taken care of throughout. We had a sermon on that a few weeks ago. Revelation 15 gives us a fourth cycle of the bowls. Revelation 17.1 gives us the fifth cycle of the woman on the beach, the great whore of Babylon that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We mentioned then that that was a view of human history through the eyes of worldliness. Revelation 19.11 is the sixth cycle, its emphasis being on the last battle with evil. Finally, we begin tonight the last of the, of the cycles, the seventh cycle and the final fate of the enemies of God. So you see the idea. What John is doing is he's giving all of human history repeated throughout these times. It's no mistake that there are seven of those cycles. Thank you very much. Now look, why do I believe that that's what's going on here? Well, let me give you one simple note and we'll move on past this simple point. Take, for instance, what we have at the very end of chapter 19. I didn't include it in our reading tonight because it would have taken far too long. But suffice it to say that in verses 17 through 21, we find that there is a brand new white rider riding on a white horse. And this is King Jesus. And King Jesus comes through and soundly defeats all those who follow the beast and the false prophet. Remember, we studied about those about three or four weeks ago. And the end of the chapter makes it abundantly clear that all of the followers of the beast are wiped out there. They're all wiped out at the end of chapter 19. So here's my question. If chapter 20 follows chapter 19 in this very strict chronological order, then who is it that's going to be left for the devil to tempt after this so-called thousand-year reign is up? You follow me on that? It can't be in chronological order. You can't apply that to the book of Revelation. If you do, you end up seeing the dramatic things that John gives here. All I'm saying is, is that in chapter 20, what we're getting is, is a look at all of what God is doing in redemptive history. It starts from the very beginning, and we get a snapshot yet again of what history looks like. So that's the first point of the interpretive clue. Number two. The second thing we have to come to understand is what in the world is this thousand-year reign that we're talking about? The thousand-year reign comes up three or four times in our passage. Well, let's do a little bit of work here. In Latin, as many of you know, the word for 1,000 years is the word millennium, which is why you're often going to hear folks talking about the millennium to refer to the thousand years that are talked about here in Revelation 20. Now clearly, 
The thousand year reign is, y'all, it's good times. Everyone's excited about the thousand-year reign. Why? Well, because Jesus is reigning and Satan is bound. In other words, it's clearly set in front of us as a wonderful time. The millennium is going to be something for Christians to get excited about. It's a wonderful thing. We should rejoice over it. And so if I'm a Christian, I want to know as much about that thousand years as I possibly can. So what's the problem? Well, the problem comes, when does the millennium start? Or when is the millennium? How will we know when we have begun this thousand-year reign of Jesus? Well, you can divide people who disagree over this uh, subject into two broad camps. <laughs> I'm doing as much. Now, you can subdivide them a bunch, but hey, we're committed to simplicity tonight, doggone it. I'm going to give you just two simple groups and how they deal with the thousand-year reign. Group number one. The first group believes that the millennium is going to begin after Jesus comes to rescue Christians from the earth. That is, there's going to be this thing that they refer to as the rapture. God, Jesus will come, He will snatch up all the Christians away into heaven, which will inaugurate, begin, the 1,000 year reign of Christ. And for these, and of course the return of Christ in power, therefore, happens before the coming of the thousand years. You see, Jesus comes in power, and then we have a thousand year reign after it. For these people, this is what the end of time looks like. Follow me carefully. First of all, Jesus secretly raptures His church. By the way, the word rapture is not found anywhere in the Bible. The actual word itself does not see it. It's an inference that people are making from certain places in the book of Revelation. But after the sort of secret snatching is, there is a period of time of intense struggle and suffering known as the tribulation. It's a seven-year period that will go on sometime in the future. Um, Yes. In other words, the the thing that we've been describing up until this time is the suffering that goes throughout human history. At the end of that seven years, these people will say that there's a great battle, the battle of Armageddon, where Jesus returns and finally defeats all of his enemies. After that time, Satan is locked up, chained up for 1,000 years, only to be released at the very end of that 1,000 years for a very short period of time. Finally, after God puts a final end to Satan's work, he throws him into the lake of fire and ushers in the new Jerusalem. Now, how complicated was that? Not so much. It's simple to understand. That is the view of human history that is espoused in the wildly popular Left Behind series of which you are almost certainly aware. You'll see that framework applied throughout the whole of the book. But that group is committed to the idea that the thousand year reign is yet to come. But guess what? There's another way to take that view. And that is the view that I'm going to espouse and that I'm going to try to sell you on tonight. Because what this, what this group believes is that that group has missed something essential. Two things actually essential. Number one, the word, the, the idea of a thousand years. Surely by this time, you don't think that I have done something horrible to the text to suggest that the thousand year reign is not meant to be taken as a literal thousand years. Remember, numbers in John's mind are highly symbolic and not necessarily meant to be taken literally. These folks, I think, took a thousand years simply to mean a really, really long time. 
Think about the number 1,000. 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10. 10, of course, being the number of completion, like we talked about earlier in the semester. 3 being the number of perfection. So 10 times 10 times 10 gives us the kind of number that is simply saying to us the same thing that it said back in chapter 12, where we talked about the time, times, and half a time. I think what John is saying by a thousand years is not a literal thousand years. I don't think there's any compelling reason to take it that way. What he's saying is the amount of time that Satan's going to be bound is exactly what God wants it to be. That's it. It is a set, ordained time. And guess what? It's a long time. A very long time. You follow me? There's a difference there. In other words, I'm suggesting that the thousand-year reign is not meant to be taken literally. The second thing, therefore, is that these people believe is that, therefore, the thousand-year reign started as soon as Jesus took his throne. And we believe that Jesus took his throne at the very end of his work on earth. When he was ascended up into the heavens as his disciples watched him in Acts Acts chapter 1. Having defeated all of the satanic forces on the cross. In other words, this view looks and says that we are not waiting for Christ to reign. The thousand years is now. Right now. We believe you are living in the middle of it because Jesus is reigning and because Satan is bound. That's the view. Now look, you should be sitting there thinking to yourself, okay, I was with you on the whole Jesus reigning thing. That sounds all cool and whatnot. We're down with that. Two thumbs up for Jesus reigning. (laughs) But then you said that whole thing about Satan being bound. How can you say that, Les? I mean, surely you're not suggesting that now we believe that Satan is bound. Well, actually, we really do believe that. Why? Because I think Jesus believes it. (laughs) This brings me to my third point. You've got to understand the snapshot of history. You've got to understand the thousand-year reign. You also have to understand the bound devil. Look, it should be easy to find out if Jesus is reigning or not because Revelation uh, says that while he is reigning, Satan is bound up. And people look and say, you've got to be kidding me. Lest there is so much evil in the world all around us, surely you can't expect me to believe that somehow the devil is bound and chained and limited in what he can do. And so therefore they side with the Left Behind series that assume that we are still waiting for that thousand year reign to come. But I think Jesus actually says very clearly that even now Satan is bound. Don't believe me? Well, later on, not tonight, or maybe later on tonight you can look at this, not right now. But in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is having yet another fight with the religious leaders of his day. These are these men called the Pharisees. And the reason why the Pharisees are ticked at Jesus right now is because they're casting out demons from possessed people. Well, you know, God forbid that Jesus should be actually relieving people of their demons. But they're mad at him anyway. And they're trying very desperately to publicly discredit him, you know, by passing on rumors about him. And one of the things that they say about him is, you know how he does that, don't you? Oh, he's casting out demons all right, but he's casting out demons because he's in cahoots with them. This Jesus character, this sort of country bumpkin uh, uh, rabbi, is um, this guy actually is himself part of the devil's friends. And that's exactly why he's able to cast out demons. Well, 
Well, Jesus is sitting in front of them, getting ready to say exactly what you're thinking, going, okay, follow that logic, uh, religious leaders. If I'm in league with the devil, why would I be casting demons out? And then in chapter 12, of, uh, chapter 12, verse 29 of Matthew, he says this. He says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and it is, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone, listen very carefully, listen very carefully, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Interesting choice of words there. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Do you hear what Jesus said there? Jesus is saying first, if demons are coming out, if you see demons being cast out of people because Jesus has the Spirit of God, then the kingdom is not something we're waiting for. It's here. It's among you. It's right now. But then he adds that the only way to plunder the strong man's house, and I think it's pretty clear that when Jesus talks about the strong man, he's referring to the devil's power, is to bind him. Guess what? It's the exact same word that's used in Revelation chapter 20 of the Satan being bound. Same word. Later on in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus sends out His disciples. There's a whole big group of them, not just the twelve, but also His other followers. And when they come back, they're all kind of freaking out at the kind of power that Jesus has given them. And they come back and they say, good grief, even the demons are subject to your name, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, you know what? While you were out, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, at my advent, the fact that I have come and shown up on the earth means that I have put an end to Satan's influence. I put an end to it, at least his dominating influence. Jesus is saying that when I came to live out my mission on this earth, a major aspect of that mission was to cripple Satan, to absolutely cripple him from doing what he had done all the way up until this time. And according to what I'm suggesting is our view of Revelation, that's already happened. Satan has been absolutely crippled by the cross of Jesus Christ. And don't you let anyone tell you any differently. Because I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, Les, (laughs) how can you say that? Have you picked up the newspaper? Have you seen the kind of evil that our entire world is fraught with? How in the world can you suggest that Satan is somehow bound and chained and that he's been crippled? Listen to me though, my friends. That may be true here in America. It's not true in the rest of the world. My friends, the 20th century has seen the greatest strides of the Christian gospel that we have ever seen in the entire expanse of Christian history. It's an absolute fact. This year, we estimate that some 200,000 Chinese will be converted. In Africa, Christianity is the fastest growing religion on the whole continent. Northern India, we believe, will see thousands of churches planted this year. Now look, I'm not trying to suggest that there's anything special about the 20th or 21st century. I'm simply saying... That the Bible teaches, and it is borne out in history, that Satan's grip on the nations has, as Jesus said, been chained up. 
And when John gives us the story of what will happen when he sees the great dragon chained, he is seeing a picture of the cross. And it's already happened. Follow me? The gospel now marches on through time, through culture after culture, bringing stability and peace to its faithful adherents. That's human history for you right there. Which brings me to the last point about the vision of thrones. So where does that leave us? What do I think is going to happen to us? Finally you came to it. It took you a whole semester to get to Les's prediction about the future. You ready? Here it comes. I'm doing just two or three sentences. I think it's decidedly simpler myself. I believe that the Bible teaches that human history will continue to march on for an indefinite period. A date by the which that Jesus guaranteed nobody knows. And yet we still try to figure it out. Until the followers of the Lamb become a group that no one can number. Like John saw that they would be. And at the end of time, there will come a release of Satan for a very short time. A heretofore unheard of time of unbelief. After which God will usher in the end of time. And as our passage says, He will cause all to stand before the great white throne of judgment. And then finally, Jesus will return and He will transform everything into a new heavens and a new earth. A new Jerusalem. That's it. There's my prediction for the future. The gospel marches on unabated until a final last crisis when Jesus comes, ends it all, and His people reign forever. That's how it all ends. A nice simple thing. But here's the question that the text deals with. But what about those people who die before that happens? Because you're looking and saying, well, we really don't know when that's going to be. Is it going to be a short time or a long time? My answer is I have no idea. Could be tomorrow night. Could be in half an hour. Could be in 20 minutes. I have no idea. We have no idea, neither do you. Jesus says nobody knows the day. Not even Him. But verse 5 actually gives us the important question. But what about those who have died before all that comes? What about those who have died before yet? He talks about those people as those who experience, notice the phrase, the first resurrection. What this means is, is that they have not yet received the resurrection bodies that they will have when Jesus finally sets up the new heavens and the new earth. They haven't yet. They've been through the first resurrection. In other words, they've died, but they've been resurrected. The second resurrection will happen in that day in the future where He will take up their bodies and give them brand new bodies. And we all get those brand new ones that we talk about. That's why it says that death and Hades give up her dead. That they will come and be united to Christ. That's the second resurrection. Ah, but the first resurrection, John says, Oh, blessed are those. Blessed are those. Now remember who John is speaking to. He's speaking to suffering people. He's speaking to people who have lost their mothers and their fathers and their brothers and their sisters. And they're looking and going, but what about those people? And John says, oh, let me tell you. In that place right now, if you look and see, you would see nothing but a room full of thrones. Because all those people will reign from the moment of their death. My friends, listen, this was, this was huge to me. Because to be honest with you, I've never really put this together. The Bible is not just saying that upon the moment of the followers of the Lamb's death, that you will be released into glory. He then says you will go and take a seat on a throne. And there you will reign and judge the angels. And I have no earthly idea what that means. 
I'm, just, I'm going to shoot you straight. I have no idea what it means to judge angels. But it seems like a pretty good thing. And you know what it means is? It means that if you're following Jesus tonight, you are destined for a throne. That's where you're headed. Do you know what that means? That means that you have and are in possession of an unspeakable dignity. Your worth is incalculable. There's nothing that can measure it. It means that the the Christian view of the end times, you matter. You matter to me, friend. You matter to Him. You matter to the only one that it matters to matter. And for that reason, there is dignity. And this is what I think is beautiful in the passage. And I'll finish with this. Alanis Morissette had the most wonderful song that she wrote at the end of the Narnia movie. Remember this song? The song Wonderkind? Love this song. The lyric goes like this. She says, compatriots in place. They'd cringe if I told you. Our best back pocket secret, our bond full-blown, what is it? I am a magnet. Listen to it. This is what she says about herself. She says, I am a magnet for all kinds of deeper wonderment. I am a wonder kind. I am a pioneer, naive enough to believe this. I am a princess on the way to my throne, destined to seek and destined to know and destined to rule. You see, in the faces of the little children in Narnia, she looked and understood the point. I have no idea, Lana Morris, that spiritual condition. But she's got it right on right there. That's about as Christian as it can be. That there is at the heart of the Christian message a message of dignity. That you're better than this. Not worse. Jesus' work in you is to set you on a throne with authority and crown you with beauty. Gentlemen, this is why your insecure wallowing night after night in pornography, I will say, is beneath you. It's beneath you. And the cocky sort of arrogant airs that we put on are in fact a denial of your manhood, not an affirmation. Listen to me, gentlemen. You are a king. You are a prince to the king, destined to rule. Act like it, the Bible says. Ladies, it means that your tireless efforts to sort of cover up with a ton of makeup the wounds that have been inflicted on you in this sort of sex-soaked society will always fail. They are all destined to fail. And the truth of the matter is, is in the Christian message, not only are you safe, but you're destined to rule. And all of, all of your silly, gossiping manner is beneath you. Act like the queen you will be, the Bible says to you. So here's my question. And I'll borrow Lana Morissette's phrase. I wonder who in this room is naive enough to believe this. <laughs> I think what she's talking about there is this simple faith that would admit something that deep down I think you long to be true. That you are not an accident. That your life has had a purpose to bring you to where you are right here, right now, in this place tonight. You have a purpose. You have dignity. 
You have a destiny for those who follow the Lamb. I wonder here who would be naive enough to believe that. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would... We are so used to appropriately admitting something about ourselves which is hard to admit, and that is that we are sinful and depraved and wretched. But we have lopped off, it seems, the second part. And that is the beauty of knowing that you have crowned us in splendor. That we don't just stare at your beauty, but we share in your beauty. And inside every man in this room, there longs to be a significance that knows that. And inside every woman in this room, there is a longing to be beautiful in a way in which they know they never can be. At least not in this life. Holy Spirit, only You can come in and transform us from our teeny tiny little pitiful aspirations. How we've looked and we've sighed at our lives. And we've grown so bored with what You've made us to be. Forgive us for not realizing what it promises us here is that we will sit on thrones with our great and mighty King. Father, we thank You for the encouragement that those who we have lost, some of us in this room have already lost friends. We don't pity them. They sit on thrones judging the angels. Thank You for the glorious vision. Transform us by it so that we can see the end of our stories. And in so doing, live different lives than the ones we're living now. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name.